0: From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.
1: Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. The war in Ukraine, one year later, how have Ukrainians who have settled here in the Commonwealth adjusted to their new lives? And are volunteers from our area still helping in the war-torn country? We'll talk about it with an immigration attorney from High S.P.A. and a doctor from Cooper University Healthcare.
2: The United States, since 9-11, has had the most rigorous security vetting system in the world. It is a 10-step, time-sensitive process. So what unfortunately happens is someone will go through steps one through three, no problem. Step four, there's some sort of bureaucratic snafu. Maybe a staffer is out sick. Maybe something got lost in the mail. And if that happens and step three expires, you have to go back to the beginning and start all over.
1: Sharaday Howard sits down with a nine-year-old high school graduate.
3: So I was talking to the high school principal. And so I said, tests? Show that you know the writing. Projects show that you know how to apply the concepts.
1: That's coming up on Bridging Philly.
0: This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM.
1: It has been a full year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What was first deemed as a military operation, the ongoing conflict has left devastating damage to the country and, of course, the loss of tens of thousands of lives. It's also caused thousands to flee and seek refuge in other countries, including the United States and, of course, here in the philadelphia region in fact philadelphia was recently deemed one of the largest welcoming cities for asylum seekers in the united states now as we mark the one-year anniversary of this conflict we reached out to a couple of people who know firsthand what it's like to either train medics and treat the injured in ukraine and also what it takes for someone to get settled In a new land. With me today is Dr. Joshua Rempel with Cooper University Healthcare. He's an emergency medicine physician and assistant professor of emergency medicine at Cooper Medical School of Rowan University. Also joining me is Catherine Miller-Wilson, immigration attorney and executive director of Highest Pennsylvania, which provides legal and social services to at-risk immigrants and refugees. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much. Glad to be here.
1: Now, Catherine, I'd like to start with you. If you could just walk us through what happens when, say, a family of refugees from Ukraine arrives to Pennsylvania. They are essentially trying to restart their lives, whether it's temporary or permanent. Yes?
2: Yes, that's true. One thing that the public doesn't really understand is, in fact, most of the Ukrainians that have come to us for the last year are not designated as refugees. The term refugee has been used by the media to refer to Ukrainians, but it's actually a legal word. And you have to qualify for that designation. And the Ukrainians that uh, are entering are entering through something called sponsorship, which means that they are paroled into the country. They are permitted to enter the country They also are permitted by Congressional Act of April 2021 to work, to obtain food stamps, and to obtain Medicaid. They are not, however, permitted to receive refugee resettlement services because they are not legally designated as refugees. And Hmm, the reason that that happened is because our refugee resettlement process, which occurs overseas is such a prolonged process that uh, we were not able to process Ukrainians fast enough as refugees to get them here. If we had insisted on a refugee designation, they would not arrive for literally years, five years, six years, seven years. Um, And so uh, we were receiving appropriate level pressure from our allies to let Ukrainians in, to not force them to remain in overcrowded refugee camps, waiting to go through the United States security vetting process for refugees. So, as a result, our government created United for Ukraine, a sponsorship program. They created this in April of 2021. As I indicated, it means that Ukrainians who find sponsors, that is, Americans who have sufficient income and assets to support them for two years are permitted to enter the country as sponsored immigrants, as humanitarian parolees for two years to work, to get food stamps, to get Medicaid, but they are not permitted to remain beyond the two years. They would have to apply for asylum to remain here. And one of the problems is that there is insufficient government funding to increase our capacity to represent Ukrainians. So um, this program, in my opinion, has been somewhat disastrous. Uh, We have seen many, many sponsorships break down so that Ukrainians that we're serving are seeking housing, which is not something that we are funded to provide because the sponsor isn't able to house them. Or the sponsor has housed them in paid-for, first, last, and security at housing that is far too expensive for the Ukrainian to afford, so they're facing eviction. Or they're in overcrowded conditions uh, because the sponsor is housing them in their own home. So there are multiple Ukrainians and sponsors living together. Um, So this has caused numerous problems. And I wanted to alert the listeners to this because people, as I said, are under the mistaken impression that they have a refugee designation, which they do not. And they also are under the mistaken impression that this program, United for Ukraine, is a wild success. Um, It is not a wild success, (laughs)
1: Well, well, that sheds a new light on this entire situation, especially when you're talking about sponsorships breaking down. Um, I mean, when something like that happens, what, what is a family to well, do? Well, so
2: the families are in fairly desperate situations. They come to agencies like ours seeking help, and we do certainly do the best we can to help them. But as I said, we don't have capacity to provide the legal services that they need. And we also don't have the ability to provide them with housing assistance. So we're scrambling to uh, provide temporary free housing with some of the options that we have cultivated over the years for our refugee clients who fall into difficult circumstances. Uh, But those are obviously they're temporary and they're not ideal. So it's very, very, very challenging.
1: I mean, it's not like we are going to see an end. uh, uh, Maybe you can talk about the flow of the amount of people that are here seeking sponsorship. It's not like we're going to see an end to that anytime soon. And so then something has to give. That
2: is correct. Well, there is a bit of good news. Our refugee resettlement program has started just recently, I would say in the last maybe six weeks receiving ukrainians who have been cleared through the refugee process so that means that there is some movement overseas and so those ukrainians are very lucky because they are designated refugees they get all the benefits of a refugee and they get the services of agencies like ours to help resettle them which means we find them housing we orient them culturally, we help them to open bank accounts, we help them with employment, we help them enroll their kids in school. So if that continues, uh, that will be good. And then the only population that we need to really be concerned about are those early sponsored immigrants. Um, So, but, you know, if it doesn't, if, if there is this persistence in using the sponsorship program, which I fear there is, because our federal government has unrolled it for other populations as well, um, I think it's it's extraordinarily problematic. Um, oh. and, and again, how long does it take to
1: reach refugee status?
2: So the refugee designation, um, my understanding is it's not particularly lengthy. The issue is that once you're designated a refugee, the next step in the process is where will you be resettled? And what is that country's process? The United States, since 9-11, has had the most rigorous security vetting system in the world. It is a 10-step time-sensitive process. So what unfortunately happens with too much frequency is someone will go through steps one through three, no problem. Step four, there's some sort of bureaucratic snafu. Maybe a staffer is out sick. Maybe uh, something got lost in the mail. And if that happens and step three expires because the approval is only good for a certain time amount, you have to go back to the beginning and start all over. And that's where the delays can happen. So, when there is adequate staffing overseas and there are not snafus along the way, you can go through the 10 steps. It may take six months or eight months and then you can be resettled. When there are snafus and you have to constantly be sent back to the beginning because of lack of adequate staffing or other problems, then it could take up to 20 years, which is obviously pretty outrageous. We've resettled refugees that were born in a camp, raised in a camp, married in a camp, and arrived here pregnant with their first child.
0: Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. Dr.
1: Rimpel, um, from what I understand, you and a group of doctors actually went to Ukraine and you were able to train medics and also offer trauma and mass casualty training. First of all, t- tell me about what went into organizing a trip like this. I think it was you and 12 other doctors, correct?
4: It was actually a pretty multidisciplinary team of paramedics from the United States, nurses, public health professionals, and physicians. And it really came about uh, the International Medical Corps, which has really a long-standing presence in Ukraine, and their kind of assessment on the ground was some interest in certain types of training, primarily around trauma care and you know, basic life support trauma care, all the way up to more... Mass casualty and administrative hospital preparedness for what was happening. So it was a very, I would say, well thought out plan and proposal in terms of some of the, the trainings that would be at least provide some benefit to um, various levels of healthcare professionals in Ukraine.
0: Tell
1: me about just getting there, the travel, what you had to go through, some of the things you saw before you were able to finally get to where you had to be to, to set things up. What was that like?
4: Um, interesting. I will say I felt secure the entire time. The travel planning, there were a lot of last minute meetings. It was a very dynamic process, as you can imagine. Everyone assessing kind of the risk uh, as we were planning the trip. So the International Medical Corps really took the lead and did an amazing job. We flew in to Poland where we spent a night um, and then crossed over the border by foot, um, primarily because the the lines with vehicles were just very backed up. um, And so this seemed like the most straightforward way to get across. The border uh, crossing was at the time when I was crossing, not as I would say at least by foot, not massive lines in either direction. And then we essentially drove to the capital, uh, spent a night there. I was primarily based more on the eastern part of the country. So we were uh, transported across the country. Um, and I will say the, you know, the transport to get to where we were ultimately doing the training, it was quite busy. Um, you'd go through areas that seemed untouched and then areas which were clearly had been um, hit either by shellings, artillery, or um, just, just kind of seeing the destruction and then roadblocks along the way.
1: Tell me um, about how you were received uh, by the people of Ukraine. How were you received?
4: I will say what kind of struck me the most was just people appreciating that we were there and that the world was actually trying to do whatever we can. In my case, not, you know, not a whole lot, but at least like to have some presence there. And that was what kind of struck me the most in thinking about some of the benefits of doing some of this type of work.
1: Yeah, I would definitely would not downplay your involvement. Don't say not a whole lot. That's a whole lot. Just the risk alone. I mean, a lot of us would not even attempt to do uh, what you and your class of doctors uh, did uh, going over to Ukraine to help and train. Um, who did you train, as a matter of fact? Was it a matter of whoever had any kind of experience medically that was willing to help? How did that work?
4: There were six different courses that were meant, and some were meant, were geared really towards hospital administrators, towards that. Um, kind of mass casualty preparedness. And then some of the most, I would say, accessible and popular were basic trauma care. Um, And those were opened up really to anyone. So it really spanned from people who were out of their job as a cook towards paramedics looking to gain a little bit more experience.
1: Wow. Catherine, um, let's, let's get back to uh, some of the work uh, of HIAS. Uh, when people from Ukraine finally establish their refugee status, um, that opens up a, a lot of uh, different services that HIAS can offer them. Walk me through that. We're talking about you know families who are not sure if they're ever gonna go back to their country, uh, have to reestablish themselves here in a new city. And I liken it to try to tell people or even for myself, when we put myself in their shoes, everything that I have is gone. The people that I know I don't have contact with, you're there with whatever family that you have, extended family is who knows where, that is a lot.
2: Definitely, it definitely is. And there are several entry points to our agency uh, and to the services that are available. If you are uh, designated a refugee, then you would come through our refugee resettlement program. And the way that that works is uh, once a Ukrainian refugee is cleared for travel, that means they've gone through the security vetting and the healthcare vetting. Um, Then they go on a list of cleared for travel that the State Department has. The State Department shares that with 10 national agencies and the 10 agencies then meet every single week and agree to divvy up that list of cleared for travel amongst themselves. Once they've made that agreement, the ones that are assigned to each national then gets assigned to affiliates all over the country who do refugee resettlement. When that happens, we get an email saying, such and such person um, is arriving on such and such date. Usually it's 10 days from the date of the email. And we have to confirm that we will meet them at the airport and take them on as a resettlement case. Um, When that happens, our case managers mobilize immediately because the first thing they have to do is find affordable housing. Hopefully they find the housing. We have a warm uh, meal waiting in the apartment. Um, And then we meet the person at the airport and we take them to their new apartment in Philadelphia. We have to, by federal mandate, not leave until they know how to use the microwave, the fire extinguisher, call 911, um, and have everybody's cell phone. We, in addition to the minimums, we also provide all of our refugees with Chromebooks and a year's worth of Wi-Fi access. We then tell them that we will be back to pick them up at 8 o'clock the next morning, regardless of what time they arrive. Because we have 90 days to orient them to the United States. We get them medical insurance. We get their kids enrolled in school. We provide them with cultural orientation. We get them social security cards, work authorization, and also start ESL, help them find employment and open up bank accounts. They get a federal stipend, which we use in part to secure housing and in part, which we distribute to them for use. At the end of the 90 days, they are supposed to be what's called self-sufficient. And if they are, then uh, that's the end of that. And we tell them to come back in a year where a different program will help them adjust their legal status to get uh, green cards. If they are not self-sufficient, it's normally because of a couple of different reasons. One, they might be suffering from either physical or mental health issues that are preventing them from getting on their feet. So we will enroll them in our intensive health and wellness program for services that last an additional eight months. Um, Or they might just have particular employment handicaps, um, language challenges, learning disabilities, or opposite end of the spectrum, be highly qualified and wanna try to be credentialed so that they could do what they were doing in Ukraine here. If that is the case, we enroll them in our employment program and we assist them there for an additional eight months. For the sponsored immigrants, as I said, they are not refugees, so they can't get those services. They can be enrolled in our health and wellness program. They can be enrolled in our employment program, and they also can receive um, case management services from what's called our Asylum Outreach Program, which is normally a program to help people who have gotten asylum, which is not this population. Because we're a statewide program, it was a good place to refer Ukrainian parolees seeking assistance. The fourth place that they can try to get services for low-income immigrants of any place who need legal services, they can call us and we will do an intake and try to determine whether we are able to help them. We address the needs of over 4,000 clients a year, and that number is increasing, as you can imagine, with Afghans, with Haitians, uh, with Ukrainians, with Venezuelans, Nicaraguans, et cetera. And unfortunately, while the federal government has given us increased funding for health and wellness and for employment, they have refused so far to give us increased funding for legal services. So that leaves the humanitarian parolees left with a ticking clock, you know, well, so. Well, yeah.
1: And those legal services are definitely needed. I mean, so many services are needed for those who are trying to settle here, especially because there's just so much out there that can trip them up, especially in terms of, um scams uh, human trafficking things of that nature they really need to know what to look out for so that's absolutely that's very that's very uh, unsettling dr rempel tell me about your your final impressions of the people in ukraine and would you go back and train and serve again
4: um absolutely to the second question the initial effort was kind of a pilot program so they're kind of looking and clearly the the dynamic on the ground is changing. So it's always a risk assessment on the organization as well as individually. We've tried to make the trainings accessible also online and virtually. And so there's been some talk about trying to hold some along those lines as well. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: All right. Well, I don't know how long this is going to be going on, but um, it's wonderful that we have people like yourselves that are at least helping and and doing the work and, and helping people resettle and helping people to train and just all around. It's just been very exhausting and continued success with what you're doing. We've been talking with Dr. Joshua Rempel with Cooper University Healthcare and also Catherine Miller-Wilson, an immigration attorney and executive director of Highest PA. Thank you both for uh, shining a light on this situation and for everything you do. Thank you.
4: Thank you, Rico.
0: Bridging Philly continues in a moment. Back to Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 103.9 FM.
1: So, how many nine-year-olds do you know of that are already looking at Ivy League schools? Sharaday Howard caught up with a true child prodigy.
5: Our newsmaker this week is David Bellagun, the nine-year-old boy from Ben Salem who's been splashed across headlines around the country for making history by becoming one of the youngest high school graduates after earning his diploma remotely through REACH Cyber Charter School. And get this, his GPA is 4.0. Now he's looking at Ivy League universities where he plans to study science, quantum physics, engineering, and robotics. This Black History Month, we're reminded that children of color such as nine-year-old Bellagun and his family, are keeping a promise made decades ago by Dr. Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders ensuring liberation of black bodies and black genius. Welcome the Belegoon family to Bridging Philly. So we have David here, his mother Rania, his father Henry, his aunt Sarah and his little cousin Eliana. So I'm going to start here with mom. Now your nine-year-old son not only cares that he does well, but he's looking to lift His entire community, because he says he
6: has a purpose. Praise God, yes. That's what we are here for. The first day, he says, this is all for the greater good. It's not just for him. It's for everybody else. You're kind of all the things
5: and one little nine-year-old kid. Like, how is this possible? Do you amaze yourself? No. (laughs) Humility. Humility at its best. What is the best part of all of this in terms of your experience?
3: Building robots. Yes, I built eight robots in total already. So when people say you're smart, what goes through your mind? That I'm intelligent. Mm
5: -hmm. But I noticed you're also humble. Why is that important?
3: because if you're arrogant then nobody's going to want to be with you you say oh i'm the best oh i'm the best okay mr best see you later i'm gonna go (laughs) hang out with the other people (laughs) and it doesn't give you a
5: chance to kind of serve a larger purpose and that's kind of what you're doing here right yes why is that important to you
3: because i think that there are a lot of people out there that can do the same thing as i do but they don't have the opportunities and they don't have the resources. A lot of gifted kids, 17% of the population, a lot of them drop out of high school because they're very bored. The curriculum doesn't suit how they want to learn. So you want to make sure that they can learn the way that's suitable for gifted kids. For example, let's say that I'm in a lesson. The teacher says addition means adding two numbers together. The gifted kid is like, okay, let's go forward. But not everybody's going in the classroom is going to be like that. So the teacher's going to have to repeat it again and show them.
5: So what's next?
3: I want to go to college. We're looking into Ivy Leagues. We looked into UPenn, Harvard and Princeton. I also want to look in professions such as engineering, astrophysics, chemical engineering, nuclear chemistry, and rocket science. So what gets you excited?
6: I can tell you what makes him excited. He just wants to learn. And that's the problem. Sometimes the school makes kids work harder, not smarter. Passing a test does not mean you know the material.
3: So I was talking to the high school principal. Mm -hmm. And so I said, tests? show that you know the writing. Projects show that you know h- how to apply the concepts.
5: And when people don't understand critical thinking and how to apply the work, they kind of miss the whole point, right?
3: Yeah. If, if you can do a million times a million, but you can't add one centimeter plus one centimeter in building, then all your education is useless. So it's like you're saying, pay attention.
6: Pay attention
5: to what works. Yes, I And think. mom figured out what works.
6: Yes, I think what he's saying is absolutely true. I've mm-hmm. realized that he could do multiplication. He cannot do multiplication without doing addition. So if I pushed and he already interested to do multiplication, right. he's learning both of them. Why do I have to make sure that he knows how to do one-digit number by one-digit number? If he can right. do four-digit yeah. number, it's even more practice for yeah, him. And this things. is when you hold kids back and this is when they get bored and this is when they don't excel it's like I already know how to do it yes it's rigidity rigidity and lack of flexibility the same assignment can be given to the whole class but we can be adjusted depending on the intel not the intelligence per se the abilities of the kids how about that the capacity yes so if these kids from this range to this range can do this Mm -hmm. He doesn't need to work harder. He doesn't need to solve a hundred questions to prove that he knows the material. He can do something a lot higher in a way that challenges him. Do you know what? He was working with his teacher on the class.
5: What?
6: He was working on refuting the Big Bang Theory. Dad, how
5: amazing is it to look over at your son and your family and think, boy, we did this.
3: We're just glad.
6: We are very grateful that he is able to comprehend at the level that he has gone so far. I mean, this is amazing. Amen, amen, amen. this is due to the love of all of us
5: but you've actually allowed him to also just be a kid, to dream. David, how much does imagination play a role in all of this?
3: If you think about something, you can create it. Like, I can't create a light if I don't think about creating a light. You have to have a dream in order to figure out what you're doing. But you know what? There was a promise.
5: It's kind of like a dream that was connected to what you were saying. So years and years and years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King mentioned a dream. Yes. And did you know you're kind of part of this dream? Yes. Yeah? Yeah. it's a promise that's been kept by your mom and your dad and you're part of that promise you're part of that dream yes well how does that make you feel
3: i'm very happy but i also want to make sure that this isn't about me this is about first of all giving glory to god and second of all showing that a lot of people have the ability to do this if we focus on creating better education, we might, then people will start to realize we can do things better.
5: Okay, David, leave us with a nugget of brilliance.
3: One of the things Einstein said is I'm not smarter than people. I spend a lot more time on the question.
5: Wow, just well. Thank you so much, all of you, for being here. Again, the Bellagun family. David, congratulations.
3: Thanks. Thank
6: you very much.
1: Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly, at Raquel on Air, and at Shara Day. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.